0: Lord, you are awesome in your, um, in your power, awesome in your mercy and your grace, awesome in the love that you've displayed to us. We didn't have to be here today, Lord, but you saw fit to wake us this morning, take us through the day, and bring us here this evening. And Lord, we want to pause and just say thank you. Bless you, Lord. We love you. Lord, even now, I pray that you would fill our hearts with your spirit. I pray that you would fill us that Uh, we would be able to receive what you would have us to receive this evening. I pray, Lord, that you would clear our hearts, clear our minds. Um, Lord, that we would um, uh, hear you clearly. Lord, remove um, those things that would distract us at this time, Lord, so that we can again, like Pastor Chris prayed, draw nearer to you, nearer to you, blessed Savior. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Um, We're going to be in um, Matthew uh, Matthew chapter uh, 5 uh, this evening. So while you're turning there, I'll give you a little little background. Times are absolutely crazy for the disciples. The time that they're living in is absolutely just insane. They're under the authority of Rome, um, which is not a good thing and a good feeling at all. They have no authority of their own to rule and govern themselves um, um, just like today, terrorism is crazy everywhere. That's from the Jews to the Romans and the Romans to the Jews. Um, they're just living in a very desperate time, a very tough and a very difficult time. And the Messiah comes onto the scene. They've been waiting for him. They've been waiting for Jesus for a long time. And, and for some reason, the spirit was ripe it was the the folks knew that something was imminent. Something was close. the The savior was was to, to arrive on the scene soon. So they had that that feeling, and they were excited about that that feeling because of because again because of the um uh, the times. It was just crazy, um absolutely insane. And so the Messiah uh, shows up on the scene, and Jesus is going to preach his first recorded sermon. Messiah has been waited for for a long time. They've been waiting for him to arrive. They've been waiting for things to change. They've been waiting and waiting. And his first recorded sermon is Matthew chapter 5, 5, 6, and 7. What would the Messiah have to say? What's the first thing on his heart and on his mind that he needed to give to the world, give to his disciples and give to the world? Jesus Christ is going to preach, and it's a long, long sermon. I know we get uncomfortable. We switch cheeks and all that stuff while we're sitting on the seat and all this stuff after about 30 minutes, 35 minutes, but he's going to preach a long sermon, chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and he had a lot to say. But what was important, what he said is going to set the tone for his ministry. What he said at that moment, that opening sermon was going to decide the fate for a lot of people over the next three years. People like the Pharisees, from the get-go, they were were going to understand who this man was, and, and we'll see quickly and immediately why they just didn't like that man. We're going to see very quickly and immediately why some followed, some didn't. Why some came to Christ and many did not. This first sermon really laid the foundation. And it's not what a lot of us think it is um, in terms of um, we've, heard, we've heard the words before, blessed are they that mourn. Because we've all been there. and We've even used that passage of scripture to comfort those who were mourning. But we've got to make sure we understand the context of that mourning. And we've got to understand what Christ was saying when he said it. There's enough in the Sermon on the Mount. Just the first portion. We're only going to look at a couple of verses this evening. But there's enough in there to, to offend everybody <laughs> at least once, and some of us more than that. And by the word offend, I mean just hurt or cause us to really turn inward, introspective. And, and that hurts sometimes. That hurts often. You know? And so that being said, Jesus Christ is gonna preach his first sermon. What is important? What's the most important thing? What's, what's on his heart? We call these the Beatitudes. Jesus is gonna say, blessed are they that are poor. In, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that, blessed are they, and blessed are they, and blessed are they. The word blessed simply means happy. Jesus' first sermon It's gonna be on happiness. I want you to be happy, but let me define happy for you. Because everybody's searching for it. Everybody wants to be happy. I told people when when I first got married, uh, my wife and I dated for four years. Four years dated before we got married, dated through college. Then got married. A year and a half into the marriage, my wife looked at me and she said, Mel, I ain't happy. I'm not happy. She was looking for happiness. And knucklehead me was not not responding right, you know, or properly. I see some sisters saying amen, amen, amen. They're just not knuckleheads. Uh, And I just wasn't responding. Everybody's looking to be happy. We want happiness. We want to be happy. And Jesus' first sermon, first words are about happiness. He wants us to be happy. But those of us that seek that happiness often decide, or all of us who seek happiness, seek it the wrong way and don't understand truly what it is. Or the word is just, it's, a, it's an intrinsic, um, just happiness. It's happy. It is applied to, Christ, it's applied to God in First Timothy 1. It says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which, uh, with which I have been entrusted, the blessed God. It's the same word. The happy, the God who is, who is happy. So if it's something that God has, it's intrinsic. It depends on what's on the inside, not on something outside. Not on something external. Not on something that uh, can come and go, that passes and fades, that whatever. Not on external circumstances. This happiness is an inner state of, of being. It's, it's something intrinsic. It's something deep and on the inside. Not on the outside. And it does not depend on what's on the outside and what happens on the outside or what doesn't happen on the outside. That's why so many of us get so unhappy because we, because that happiness is based on something outside. It's based on that husband, the knucklehead. It's based on that wife. It's based on that child. It's based on the economy. It's based on the government. It's based on, it's based on everything that shifts and changes. And we put our hope in that happiness i mean happiness towards those things or we put our happiness or or think that happiness and those things are going to cause us to be content and it's not kingdom people and this is who jesus is going to talk to tonight kingdom people are happy people those who are in the kingdom of god those who know jesus christ those who have accepted christ as their lord and savior they're happy and there's a reason they are and those who are not There's a reason that they are not. But that happiness is something that kingdom folk, they have it in them. Not only do they have it, but they are always growing in that happiness because they continue stage after stage in their growth, the way and in the direction that Christ guides them. Well, the first sermon of Jesus Christ is gonna be about happiness. The first part of the first sermon is on happiness and your happiness. All of these things that make us happy, according to Christ, are things that we can't just have one or two of. I can't just be poor in spirit, and that's it from this list that we're gonna read. I can't just be one or two of them. It's all of them. All of them. It's not like the spiritual gifts. With the spiritual gifts, I've got it. I can, I, can, I have the, the gift of joy, the, the, the gift of joy, peace, patience, love, Patience, uh, I'm working on it, you know. Other things, I'm working on. I may have, or he's called some to be apostles, some to be teachers, some to be preachers, some to be this and some to be that. All those gifts, some have them and some don't, and they're gifts to be given by God to whom he pleases. But this list about what makes a kingdom citizen happy, we have to have them all, all of them. And when we're missing one or two, that happiness um, just is not there so happiness this general state of contentment it's this internal thing Jesus is going to preach on this happiness and starting in verse 3 Matthew chapter 5 it said um, blessed blessed happy every time you see that word blessed think happy happy are the poor in spirit stop so his audience is listening again they've been waiting they've been waiting for this messiah They're oppressed and they're they're hurting. And he says, happy are the poor in spirit. Let's make sure we understand what his listeners heard. They heard poor in spirit. Poor. In the Greek, there's a couple of words for poor in the original language. One word for poor is that person who has to work every day for their meal. Every day. Because they don't have a savings. They don't have a big 401k waiting for them, and and they don't have this big huge savings account. They've got to go to work today. They've got to get up and go to work today because they don't have that huge bank account. Every day they have to work. That's one word that the the Greeks used for poor. That person who must work every single day. Not the millionaire. Not the one who can sit and rest today and decide I'm not going to work today. I'm not going in. Seven days a week, every day, if I don't get up and go to work, I, neither I nor my family will eat today. That's poor. That's one poor. And his audience also understood another word for poor. Another term for poor was, I have absolutely nothing. I don't have a skill set where I can go to work and get paid today so that I and my family can eat today. The other word for poor means destitute. I mean absolutely nothing. And the, the, the base of the word is the idea of cringing. It's that person who's on the street, and that person who, out of sheer shame, can't even look up at you. They're begging on the street on the, on the street, but they can't even look at you. They outstri- They hold out their hands and they have to beg for any and everything they're going to get for that day. And every day, they have nothing but maybe the shirt on their back. They can't even work every day. They don't have a skill to work every day so that they can get paid and eat. That poor is destitute. They are impoverished. They have nothing. And every single day, they have to stand on the street corner and beg, hold out their hands, cower and beg. Guess which word Jesus used in this context? First one or the second one? Blessed are they who know that they have absolutely, positively nothing spiritually. They are spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing. They can't even work for it. They cannot work for that happiness. They can't work for whatever comes, whatever they need spiritually. They are spiritually bankrupt. Can't even work for it. They have to beg. They have to cower. They have to kneel and they have to just beg for a spiritual righteousness that they just cannot work for and get and earn. Jesus said, happy. Happier those who know that they are spiritually bankrupt. Whew. How does that go? That happiness, uh, um, that spiritual uh, uh, bankruptness, causes those people to understand that it's from this point, from this place, place where my heart is absolutely torn over the fact that I'm so poor. This beatitude, we call it the beatitudes, the Latin word for happy is or something like that, and happy, so we call them the beatitudes. This is the foundation beatitude. Without this one, the, the next ones, you, you can't. The next ones make no sense at all until you understand this first one. Happy are those who know that they are spiritually bankrupt, that they have nothing. The Bible uses the word contrite, the person who has a contrite heart. That word contrite means, here's the picture of of contrite. I take a, a 12th century Chinese vase in my hand and I'm standing over a marble floor and I let it go. Pow, it shatters. Contrite is that word, shattered completely shattered, can't put this back together, cannot glue this back together, completely shattered. That's contrite. And the scripture speaks about a person who's contrite, about who they are, contrite about their spiritual condition. Christ is going to start his first sermon on happiness, and he starts that first sermon with, know who you are, know where you are, know that you are spiritually bankrupt. You need to understand that first place, before you can come into my kingdom. In Psalm 34, Psalm 34, you can just write this down because I'm going to rush through them. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit, a shattered spirit, a broken spirit, over who they are, over their sin. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Isaiah 57, one of my favorite ones. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the the high and lofty one, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. With him who has a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. I like that one because it really distinguishes. It starts off by saying, this is God speaking, saying, this is me, the the high and the lofty one, the one that is as far away from the earth as eternity can be, that lofty one. You know who I hang with? You know who I interact with? You know who I associate with? You know who I call my own? who I tabernacle with, who I dwell with, those who are contrite, whose hearts are broken over their sinful condition. Lord, I'm so poor, I can't even work for my spiritual restoration. I can't even do that. I'm so poor, Lord, I have to beg for that. Now, there are a lot of people who claim that they're Christians who can't start from that place. They're too proud. They've got too much inside. Not humble enough to say, Lord, I come before you. I need you. Like Chris was singing, Pastor Chris was singing, Lord, I need you every hour, every minute, every second. Lord, I can't even. There's nothing I can do but beg. That person is in the right place. God is going to dwell with that person. God is going to use that person in their families and in their homes and in the city and in the community and in the country and in the but you've got to start right there. Lord, I, I am despicably poor, I'm just so poor, and if I don't start right there, I cannot be used and God will not dwell with me. In Luke 18, if you remember you remember the passage, um, turn with me to Luke 18, we'll go there because I want to read this. Pastor, pastor, what, what time do I have on a Wednesday night? What time do you usually stop? You're done. Oh, sorry, don't say that. Uh, Eight thirty. Okay, everybody. Eight thirty. Pastor. Eight thirty. Eight thirty. Okay. All right. all right. Luke eighteen. Luke. I will. I won't take you to Luke uh, to eight thirty. Uh, maybe. Um, probably. Probably. Luke eighteen, starting in verse nine. This is a familiar passage. We know this one. The Pharisee and the tax collector, starting at verse nine. Luke eighteen and verse nine. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Verse ten. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The tax collector was the most hated person in Israel. This was a person who has sold out the Jewish nation. It's a person who says, I want to collect taxes for Caesar and I, and I want a tax franchise. He opens up his own tax franchise and he taxes his own Jewish brothers, his own family and he extorts and, and this tax collector is just hated in Israel. So I've got a tax collector and a a Pharisee standing there in the temple praying. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess And the tax collector, and so this guy's standing there, just bold and and brazen in his heart. And the place that he starts is, Lord, I'm not like any of these people. And thank you that I'm not like any of them. I do everything right. I go to church, I tithe, I pray, I I fast, I do it all. Just like a lot of us can say. Lord, I do those things and get puffed up and pompous and arrogant about it, Oh, that means nothing. Because man is looking on the outside, but where is God looking? Yes. On the inside. It means absolutely nothing. What I see of you and what you see of me means absolutely nothing. As good as it may look, as good as you may look, it means absolutely nothing if the inside isn't right. And this Pharisee, the inside, wasn't right. Lord, thank you, I'm not like him. Thank you, Lord, I do all that I do. And he got puffed up in the things that he does. Sometimes in churches, there are people who come to church and they do too much church. I've got family members who do too much church. My sister, my, one of my sisters, it was church 24-7 and neglected family, neglected other things. There's, uh, just to say, I do this, I'm, I'm tithing, I'm here at church on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, all day Sunday, come back. I'm, I do these families just falling apart. What you do on the outside, it's more than just the outside. I'm not saying don't do the will of God. I'm saying it starts, though, on the outside. Like the song says, from the inside out. That's where it starts. Well, verse 13, and the tax collector standing afar uh, far off would, um, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. That's the beggar. That's the one who can't work for himself. He, he just has to sit there and head down, ashamed of who he was and who he is, ashamed of the place that he's in and the condition that he's in spiritually. All He couldn't even look up. He's begging God. When we get to the point where we get so... Too big, how they used to say, too big for your britches. When we get to that point, and we don't understand how despicable we are, we start treating people different. We start acting different. We start treating people different. That's what we're going to see with the Beatitudes. Everything gets stinky. Everything gets messed up. Everything. When we forget who we are. When we don't start at this first step. Couldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, and he said, God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's who he knew. He he knew who he was. Jesus said to them, I tell you, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said this. They're waiting for Messiah. In his first sermon, his first, first words are happy are those people who are absolutely spiritually shattered and spiritually broken. There's a reason for that mourning. They realize that they are spiritually bankrupt. And the next beatitude makes sense then. Happy are they that mourn. Why? What are they mourning? They're mourning that spiritual condition Blessed are they who are mourning over who they are, because that's what it should take us to. Once I realize who I am, I'm not the big shot, I'm not who, who, who I portray myself to be, I'm not, I'm not all that. Then there should be a, a mourning for that. And the Bible uses lots of words for, for the original language uses lots of words for, for mourning, different states of mourning. And, it's, and, and, and it's, uh, they're distinguished by intensity. Um, uh, the, actually, there's something like eight, nine Greek words in the New Testament for mourning. And it's all, and it, you know, usually related to that, that intensity, but it's a sorrow. It's, a, it's a, um, a deep, intense sorrow. And the sorrow is over that. See, the world's aim is to not sorrow and to not be sad, not to be that way. That's what the world does, right? Don't, don't be sad. We don't want to be sad. Anything but sad. Don't do that. But Jesus is saying, happiness, let me tell you how to be happy. Happy is that person who realizes that they are spiritually bankrupt, have nothing, and then they mourn over that condition. Lord, I, I'm, 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 I'm such a, I'm just that deep mourning inside over that spiritual bankruptness. See, now, can you see why I'm not going to treat my wife bad? Why I'm not going to treat my neighbor bad? Why the whole world is not my enemy? Why the boss isn't my enemy? Why? I'm not gonna, because I know who I am. I know where I'm starting. I know how God looks at me, and I know what's coming next in the Beatitudes. I know what he did for me. How dare I look at anybody the wrong way? a different way than the way God wants me to look at them. But see, I can't do that. I can't get to that state or to that place where I can be a blessing to others as opposed to be just being rotten to folks. I can't get to that place until I know who I am and I start to mourn over that. They're gonna be comforted, Jesus says. They will be comforted. So it's not, Jesus isn't talking about that person who's just mourning over a mother who just passed away, a loved one. That's that's not this passage, though that's true. Jesus is saying happiness, happiness is that happiness will come to that person who understands or who starts to mourn over that spiritual state that they're in. Those are the ones that are going to be comforted. Nobody else. No one else. Those who will be happy are those who mourn over their spiritual condition. They're going to be comforted. Because they're mourning over that. If I don't mourn over that, if I don't mourn over my sin, if I don't mourn over the spiritual state that I'm in, I'm not where I think I am. There are a lot of people in the church who are not saved. And they come every Sunday or every Wednesday. And other days, they're not. Because they haven't started here, mourning over their spiritual state and their sinful condition. They've come to church They may have come to church and these are hard words to to say and I know they're hard to hear. So just pray with me and pray for me. But there are a lot of people who come to church because they have have a, a crisis in their life. Lord, oh, the sickness brought me here. Lord, that crazy husband of mine brought me here. They had a come to Jesus moment, but that come to Jesus moment was a crisis in their life. It was a crisis. It wasn't over who they were their sinful state, their sinful condition. They never mourned over their spiritual bankruptness. They were just here in church because they had an emergency and they needed Jesus to fix it. And as long as he's fixing it, or as long as they hope or think that he's going to fix it, they're okay. But when he doesn't, when he doesn't heal their mother, when he doesn't heal the marriage, he doesn't heal the relationship, he doesn't fix it, Now I got that crisis moment where it's like, Jesus, you have failed me, I'm out. And they could have been in church for years. And people thought, boy, they're serving in the church, singing in the choir, they're here, they're doing all this stuff. But they were never in this spiritual state or condition. They never mourned over their spiritual state. They were just there because Jesus was doing okay for them. That was me in my freshman year in college. My freshman year in college, that's when I wanted to throw Jesus away and out the window. I had a moment where he wasn't meeting my expectations. I had been in church all my life and all of a sudden I was in this crisis freshman year and it was awful. I'm on my bed in the fetal position just crying and weeping and and Christ is not there. He's not answering like I wanted him to answer. God, you gotta go. Jesus, I'm, I'm giving this up. A lot of us come to Jesus in crisis moments but we don't come because of our sinfulness because we realize how sinful we are, and that we're mourning over it, we come because we need him to fix something. And as long as he's fixing it, we're okay, and we're in the church, and we're gonna stay. There are a lot of people who ask, boy, I thought they were saved. They were here, they were doing everything, it looked on the outside, like they were, like they were, they were here, they were, they were doing everything, and now they've rejected Christ, and they're out there, uh, once saved, always saved, right? No, I guess, they can, no, I guess, and they get confused. Well, maybe I can lose my salvation. No. I want you to know that tonight. You cannot lose your salvation. That's another study. But you cannot lose your salvation. The question is, are you saved? Did you come to that place where you mourned, I mean, that you mourned over that spiritual bankruptness? And if you didn't, you have not come to, you have not given your life to Christ yet. I started looking at this sermon and this topic, because we've been doing it in the Bible study, Thursday nights at, at, um, Thursday night Bible study, but I had to stay on it because I keep getting in trouble with people. I keep getting in trouble with my wife and my kids and, and folks and, and, and friends and, and all that stuff. I notice the most that I'm in trouble when I think I'm owed something. I'm, I've been doing this and I've been doing that and I've been acting right. and Lord They owe me. Everybody owes me, right? And I have to keep coming back to Mel, you are despicable. Do you remember who you are? Remember who you are. Oh, I'm just, I, I am. Now I'm not talking about that person who's just a pessimist. I'm not encouraging people to stay beaten up on yourself all the time. Jesus is going to get way past that. But happiness is going to come in. That inner contentment, that, that unshakable joy on the inside, deep on the inside, that only comes from people who know who they are. And they start mourning for that. They start mourning over that. Jesus said, those are the only people that are gonna be comforted. Those are the only people that will receive that. See, this sorrow, this kind of mourning, this kind of mourning or this kind of sorrow, it's not the world's kind of sorrow. It's the kind that brings comfort. It's the kind that brings blessedness. It's the, it's the kind that um, uh, leads to life. But there is a mourning. There's a mourning that's, that's not proper. There's a mourning that doesn't lead to, to, uh, to life. 2 Corinthians, just write this down. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 reads like this um, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. See, there's a sorrow in the world that I can be just absolutely mournful and, and depressed and lead to suicide and death. And that's that. Jesus isn't talking about that kind of mourning. There's that kind of mourning, but Paul says, no, there's a mourning from God. There's a sorrow from God that leads to blessedness, Blessedness that leads to salvation. That's the sorrow that Christ is speaking to. So he says, look, those, those of you who want to be happy, realize where you are spiritually first. And you can't go anywhere but there first. Second, mourn over that. Those people who are happy are those who have mourned over that. Who've gone, who, who mourn over that, um, uh, that condition. The next verse, blessed are the gentle, or blessed are the meek, for they're gonna inherit the earth. This flows, you're gonna see the flow. I hope you start to see the flow. Why would I even be meek? Well, let me tell you what that word meek means. Meek, gentle, humble. Doesn't mean weak, you've heard that before. Doesn't mean weak. The picture is a picture of a bridled horse. Powerful, the Budweiser horses. Can I say Budweiser in church? (laughs) The Clydesdales, right? Those big Clydesdales, those huge horses. Power bridled, under control. That's the picture. That's the definition of meek, gentle. I have the power. I can do. But meekness is that person who says, but I will not. I choose not to. How does that come after the, 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 the second one? I mourn, I mean, I'm 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 impoverished spiritually, spiritually bankrupt. I'm mourning over that. That is what will put me in a place where I can be gentle and meek. You show me someone who's arrogant, and I'll show you a fool, first of all, but they're a fool because they have not. They have not bowed to who they are, submitted to who they are. They have not recognized their spiritual condition, and they have not mourned over it. They cannot be meek. In an argument with my wife, in an argument with my children, now let's keep the kids out of of the picture, in an argument with my wife, I can be, I can bridle my tongue and I can hold on to, I don't have to raise my voice and get loud and get whatever to be, I can be gentle, I can be meek because I know who I am. That boss at work or that friend outside, that whatever, I can, I can contain, I can be meek and, and I can be humble. Those words are associated with this word. I can do that if I start by knowing who I am. How dare I raise my voice? at somebody for doing something stupid. You know how many stupid things I've done? (laughs) You know how many stupid things I keep doing? (laughs) How dare I point a finger at someone else? How dare I call someone else um, uh, out of their name or, or whatever? How dare I think that I am the end all? How dare I think a person who is loud and obnoxious and rude and assertive that word meek is the opposite of that person who's self-asserting i'm not letting anybody roll over me he's not going to get away with talking to me like that i remember that day i've got to have the last word i will have the last word i'm not going to let him think i'm weak and jesus is telling his disciples the happy person the person who has happiness is that person who knows how to be just that you don't have to have the last word You don't have to be the obnoxious one on the soapbox. You don't have to tell tell the world and tell your neighborhood and tell your neighbor, tell them off because they told you off. Or because they're doing something wrong and you know it's wrong. And you go strutting yourself around like you're high and mighty. I cannot win the argument. I don't have to win the argument. I let my wife think she wins a lot of them. (laughs) Don't tell her I said that. (laughs) I don't have to win it. I don't have to say I get the last word. There are children who have to have the last word. There are husbands who have to, there are wives who have to get in that last word. Why? Because they're going to look weak. And they're not going to look strong. And they're living in a culture, when when Jesus is talking to them, that weakness, that meekness, that's not a cool thing. Not to the Romans, not to the Jews. They're living in a time where to be weak or to be meek or to look weak That's just not good. Just like our time today. Don't let anybody get over on you. But Jesus is saying, oh, that person who's going to be happy, that person who is happy, they can do that. Why? Because they know who they are. And they've mourned over that. So they can be gentle. And they can be kind. And they don't have to return a harsh word. The word says don't return evil for evil. They did this to me. I'm going to do this to them. I'm going to get back on them. I don't have to do that. Do you know the basis for that? The basis for that attitude, the basis for that, that place. I can be meek. I can be gentle. The basis for that is, Lord, I trust you. Because that's what God said, right? God said, I'm, I'm the one who will, will pay back. Vengeance is mine, not yours. I'll deal with that. See, the person who can't close their mouth, who has to get that last word in, they're not humble, and they're also not trusting. They're not trusting God to be able to fix and to do, to fix the situation or deal with the situation. That's the basis for that. It comes from, um, um, this. it stems from this place of trust. Gentle or meek, is, it's a forgiving position. It's a forgiving place. I can forgive. I can do that. I can be humble, I can be quiet, I can, it's power under control. I don't have to do that, I don't have to be self-assertive like the gurus are telling people today. They are wrong, they are wrong, they are wrong. It's not going to lead to happiness, never does. Never has, never does. Leads to divorce, leads to losing a job. And then you're just mad at everybody, thinking it's their fault again. You've got to know where you are and where you started. I want to say so much. In our, in our world today, I'm looking at, just looking at my notes, I mean, in the world of, of, of Christ, remember the, the symbol of strength is, is what we try to be, especially us men, right? You grow up and you don't cry after, what, eight, nine, t- seven, you know? Don't cry, you know, suck it up, you know? You tell that tear, get back in there, you know, that commercial, some cartoon. Uh, we, we learn to do that. The world tries to teach us to be tough. Be strong. i me tell you a big mistake I made just a couple of days ago. I mean, awful mistake. And, and I've told my wife, um, forgive me, but I, I haven't said it well enough. I need to say it again. Her mom passed away four years ago, two days ago. So we went to the cemetery. And it's the first time that I've gone back with her to the cemetery. She needed me there by her side. And I'm with her. And I'm not the one to sit there, and, and I'm not as emotional about it as she is. It was her mom. I loved her mom. I love my mother-in-law. Um, but I try to be strong, you know. Men have to be strong and tough, whatever. I try to be. I had my two girls there. My two girls were there, and they were with mom, and, and mom just started to break down. Still dealing with it. Mom, her mom passed away the day before her mom's birthday. So... We go there on the day that you know, she passed, but the next day is her birthday, and the day after that is my daughter's birthday, and we're real close to them. It's just a tough time. My wife is dealing with all that, and I poor. She starts to cry, and I said, babe, it's been a while, you know? You don't, you don't have to cry anymore. <sighs> if I had just held my tongue and just held her, Life will be good. <laughs> it's good. I mean, I, but that's all she needed me to do. Stand by her and I'm telling her, babe, you don't need to cry anymore. It's been, it's been four years. You don't have to cry anymore. And you don't need your girls to start crying and breaking down because you're uh. And she turned at me and she looked at me with this look. She said, no, can I have a moment? That's what she said to me. Broke my heart. Yeah, babe. Yeah, and I just, I just blew it royal. I could not say anything. I could, but see, I want to be tough. I want her to be tough. I want her to be tough like me. To tough like they've made me like growing up. You gotta to be tough. You got to, There's a time where you can be gentle and meek and not look like you are that weak person. In Jesus' day, remember what they said of Jesus? Pilate said, Look, you want this weak looking guy, or do you want this crazy Barabbas? <laughs> Who do they shout for? Give us Barabbas. Barabbas. Why? Because he was just he was a macho man, he was a killer of the Romans, and he was a he was a strong guy. The world likes strong and strength and that's why all these superhero movies are one of the reasons all these superhero movies are out. They like that strength and that and Jesus said, meek. You want to be happy? Let me tell you. Know who you are. Mourn over that. And let that cause you to be meek, to have this meek spirit. What comes after this meekness? Well, I'm allowed to be meek now. That's in my interaction with other people. I can't be meek just all by myself. A monk cannot be meek. A monk off somewhere all by himself or whatever cannot be meek. Meekness is demonstrated in your relationship to somebody or someone else. So my spiritual condition was just me. My morning was just me. But now my meekness is an expression of that. And now I'm going outside of myself, but it started on the inside where I was now I'm mourning, and now the expression of that, the outward expression of that place is starting to display itself. One, in my meekness, and two, I mean, the next one, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. What does that mean? Those who are are hungering and thirsting for the righteousness in the world and want this country to turn a certain way and the government to be a certain way and for those, is that who he's talking about? Blessed are they who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Has absolutely nothing to do with what Christ is saying. They are hungering and thirsting. Let me first make sure you understand hunger and thirst. He's not talking about people who just missed lunch. We have people who just think that they are just... Famished and just whatever, 15 minutes late for lunch. And, they, and the world is going to end. And, and their body's just going to fall apart and they're just not going to live and make it, you know, to the, to the next meal. That's not what Jesus is talking about. In, in this day, hunger was real. He started, they started dealing with hunger the minute they woke up. And it's an all-day thing. Thirst. They're in this dry, this desert place and, and they knew thirst. They knew hunger, not like us. Even when we miss a meal or two, we starve. And our, and our bodies are telling us, that's not, that's not hunger. That's just, that's not starvation. That's just some hunger. I'm hungry. These people knew hunger. They knew the verge or the edge of, of being starved. Like the woman in the Bible who just had one more cup of flour. That's all she had. Gonna fix this. Me and my son, we're just gonna die. They lived in that condition. A lot of people lived like that. They hungered and, and they were thirsty. Every day they had to go and, and, and uh, all day they were preparing. All day they were running back and forth to the well or to get the water and to do. They were hungering and thirsting. This is a, I'm going to die if I don't get this, me, this meal. I'm going to die if I don't get this cool cup of water. I'm hungry and I'm, and I'm thirsty. That's, those are the words Jesus is using. And his audience would understand that. Hungering and thirsting for something. When our bodies are hungry and thirsty, they're hungering and thirsting for food, meaning they have to have it. We can live so long without food, and our bodies will die. We can live so long without drinking water, and our bodies will die. We will die. We, our bodies hunger and thirst for that which they need. He's saying the person who's happy is going to be one who has that kind of hunger and that kind of thirst for a righteousness that they don't have, that they don't possess and that they can't get See, back to one why do i want righteousness i'm looking for that righteousness to cover me i'm a dirty filthy rag remember isaiah you're best at your very best you're a dirty filthy rag and that person who realizes who they are and mourns over that and is meek and gentle in response to that god awakens in them a hunger and the thirst for righteousness, to be covered with rightness, to be justified, to be saved. If I start at the place where Jesus started, then God will awaken in me that hunger, that drive, that thirst, that if I don't get this, Lord, I'm gonna die. That kind of hunger and thirst for righteousness. So I see, I, I, as I go about my My day to day and uh, interacting with Christians and talking with Christian folk all the time I see folks who care less about righteousness they care care about looking good they care about the community knowing that they're upstanding and they go to church and they do all these things but they don't have a desire a zeal, a passion Uh, I'm going to die if I don't get this righteousness of Christ they haven't started with step one they don't know who they are and they've not mourned over that if you don't have that hunger and thirst, God will awaken in you that hunger and that thirst for righteousness, and it'll be there all the days of your life. Lord, I just want to be righteous. When I say wrong things and I do bad things, Lord, I'm going to die if I don't get this righteousness. Even when we become saved and, and we, um, um, we accept Christ as our Lord and our Savior, it doesn't stop. That hunger, it, it, it doesn't stop there. In fact, i got it even more. Now that I've accepted, now I I know who I am. Lord, more, more. Lord, fill my cup till it overflows. More, Lord, more. Righteousness, keep me right, Lord. Keep me in right standing. I know I can't lose my salvation, but I've just got this insatiable desire for this righteousness. Lord, I want to live right. I want to be right. I want to do right. I want to speak right. I want to walk right. I want to talk right. Lord, I just have this desire, this thirst, this hunger. Oh, that's a person who's content. They're going to be filled. They're going to be filled. That's a person who's content. That's a person, Jesus is saying, who's happy. That's a person who, um, that, with that driving passion, that's someone who is going to, who is going to um, uh, be happy. Question. What do you really hunger and thirst for? What do you say, Lord, I am going to die? if I don't get this? Is it a Twinkie? (laughs) Some of us act like that, right? I'm going to die if I don't get this cupcake. I'm going to die if I don't get this car. Lord, I'm going to die if I don't get this house, if we don't get this house. What do you hunger and thirst for? And it's just a, a burning desire. Lord, I have to have this. Because even if you say a right marriage... That's the wrong answer. Even if you say for my wife or my husband to do right or my kids to be right or, or for my mom to be this or my dad, whatever. If you say that, that's the wrong answer. Jesus says if you love mom, dad, brother, sister, mother, father, whatever, more than you love me, you are not worthy to be called mine. To be called my disciples. See, a lot of us come to Christ because we want him to give us something that something isn't righteousness and then when we don't get that something that's not righteousness we have an attitude with christ i did my freshman year in college we have an attitude with it lord awaken in us a desire for righteousness and make sure you understand the right the righteousness that makes us right in front of him that's the righteousness he's talking about not some overzealous righteousness I mean, some overzealous um, feelings and thoughts for rightne- righteousness in the government. He never preached that. He never said that. He never talked like, th- like that. Mm-hmm. You, start with you. You wanna change this land, this community, this whatever? Start here and watch what happens. Watch what he does with you and in the neighborhood and in the city and in this country. It starts with you. And that's what he's preaching. His first sermon, Jesus, what's important? Happiness is important. How do you get that happiness? These things that the world says, "Mm mm-mm, mm-mm, you don't get that? You're driving ambition. Whatever is compelling you, um, whatever you're driving, uh, what drives your heart, make sure that that is what God uh, wants you to have, and that's his righteousness and not anything else, nothing else first. There's God on this page of things needed, and there's nothing else on that page. There are other pages later, somewhere else down the road, but nothing's on that same page as Jesus Christ, nothing. So realize that I'm spiritually bankrupt. Mourn over that spiritual bankruptness. Be meek enough to, um, with my interactions with people because I know who I am. I and God awakens in us that hunger and that thirst for righteousness. And the next thing, and the next thing that he talks about is blessed are the merciful. Oh, those who just love mercy. And mercy is that. Mercy, mercy is what we've heard before. I, I'm giving you something that you just don't deserve. That's the idea of mercy. Connected to mercy is a lot of things. Mercy is connected to grace, and mercy is connected to love. Mer- uh, mercy is connected to uh, lots of things, but, but mercy is just, it's, it's what I've been, it's what I've been um, given that I don't deserve. Do you know why I can be merciful? <laughs> I can be merciful because I know what God has given me, that hunger and that thirst for righteousness. Oh, Lord, you did that for me? How dare I <laughs> withhold mercy? from someone else. They don't deserve it, Lord. They cussed me out. Lord, they don't deserve it. They are heathen. Lord, they don't deserve it. They are militant. Lord, they don't deserve it because they are this and they're that. And God looks at us and goes, how dare you? For someone who calls himself a child of God, who says they're a child of God, but don't have that merciful spirit, blessed are the merciful, for they're going to get... They receive that mercy. Sometimes, without getting political, we turn our battleground, we turn our, we turn our mission field into the enemy. That's the enemy. That's the enemy. That's the enemy. That's the mission field. That's your mission field. That's my mission field. I should know, I should, I should be out there. Jesus didn't say the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the, and the bad guys and the thieves and the robbers and all those guys, they're the enemy to Israel or enemy to whoever. That's the mission field. I must demonstrate mercy, forgiveness, giving people something that they don't deserve because I have been given that. Remember the, the parable, I think it's Luke 9, where this guy, uh, the king says, I'm collecting my debts and this guy owed him a billion, zillion dollars could not be paid back and he fell on his feet, fell on his face, Lord forgive me, I'll, I'll pay every penny back, knowing he couldn't pay anything back, didn't deserve it and the, and, the, and, the, and the king said, okay, all right, you're forgiven. And that knucklehead turns around and he goes out and someone owed him just a, a smidgen and he choked him and said, you're gonna get, I'm gonna throw you in jail until you pay me everything back and throw him in jail and that king heard about that and said, you snake. Something like that. (laughs) How dare you? All the mercy I showed you, and you can't show mercy? That's not a kingdom person. That's not someone in the kingdom of God. That's not kingdom character. A person who's not merciful. I'm not going to give my wife or my husband or my children or my mother or my parents. I'm not going to extend to them mercy. They don't deserve it. Yeah, that's what mercy is. Something that's not deserved, but you give it. Why? Because you were given it. And a whole lot of it. A lot of it. Do you know how rotten you were? <laughs> Slash <R? laughs> How rotten I am? How I was? And God gave it to me. How dare I not extend it to someone who doesn't deserve it? See, that's a kingdom person. Only kingdom people can do that. People who can't do that—they're not, they're not kingdom quality, kingdom character, and that's what Jesus is trying to describe. The person in His kingdom, and this person has these qualities, these characteristics. That's that's what they have. So that for that person who cannot, cannot um, uh, be merciful, um, that is not demonstrating kingdom character. Titus three five says, according to His mercy, He saved us. See, forgiveness is a part of mercy. That's what what we understand. That forgiveness or that salvation comes because of his mercy. I deserve different. I deserve something else. I deserved a lot worse. But you extended your mercy. There's nothing that anybody can do to you that is not deserving of mercy. Nothing. You cannot describe any action against you where you could stand up before God and say, they do not deserve mercy. The fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you is the ultimate end, you don't deserve it. You don't deserve anything. While we were yet enemies of Christ, that's when he died for us. He didn't die when you liked him. He didn't die for you after you accepted him. He died while you despised him in your actions, and hated him, and what you said, and how you lived, that's when he died for you. Mercy on display. And you and I say to God all the time, I'm not going to extend mercy to this person or to that person. I'm not going to do that. I'm not. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve that goodness. They don't deserve that break. They don't deserve that well, I don't expect that from non-kingdom people. I don't. But Jesus said, my kingdom people, oh, they do that. This is what they do. And guess what? They're happy. So <laughs> that's crazy. And they're happy? And I can be happy with that? Boy, when you let go, when you forgive, when you just let that poison go, <sighs> see, that's happy. And the world says just the opposite, right? And they're not happy. <laughs> Jesus says, you want to be happy, this is how you you are to be happy. Mercy flows. I'm not going to go there. Mercy flows from, uh, 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 I want to say it though. Mercy flows into forgiveness. It's mercy that allows us to forgive. It's our understanding of this mercy that allows us to forgive. That forgiveness though comes out of a love. God has given us. That's why mercy is attached to love too. God has given us this mercy for salvation's sake, because He loved us with a great love. See, it, it's love. It all, love is greater. Paul said, uh, the "Love is love is the greater." I'm gonna I'm gonna move on. Well, these these um. After I say this, I'm gonna move on. <laughs> this is this is what the merciful are, and I'm gonna close down. The merciful, the merciful are willing to be insulted and willing to be persecuted. See, that's what's coming next. These beatitudes flow. The merciful are willing to be insulted and not insult back. The merciful are sympathetic with those people who attack them. That's what mercy does, because mercy sees in them the place that they were, and that mercy pities them, and that mercy has compassion for them. Mercy is eager to forgive. Mercy is sympathetic with the afflicted. Mercy is gentle to the weak. Mercy is forgiving to everyone who abuses them. The merciful are forgiving to everyone who abuses them. The merciful are considerate of the fallen. The merciful are generous to the poor. The merciful are gracious to the offensive. Why? Because they remember. Step one, I was a wretched soul. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, that's why I can do all these things, but see if I don't start there, remember at that first step I can't get to this point I can't be merciful the beatitudes flow the blessings flow, the happiness flows in this order and you gotta have them all, God wants you to have all of these things, he wants you to be poor in spirit understand that, he wants you to be um, uh, hunger and thirst, he wants you to be merciful He he wants you, all of these he wants you to mourn from where you are all of these it gets us in the state that we're supposed to be in where God can use us in a powerful way. He wants to use us here, not just in, the ch- in our homes first. Your first ministry is at home, not outside, not to church, not to the city, not to the state, not to this country. That is not your first call, your first ministry. Home is your first ministry. He can use you right there if you start here, and boy, wow, things just start to happen. And you're like, Lord, amazing. Mm -hmm." Because it started with me being in the right place. Well, we can do this sermon. We can keep going with this sermon. I'm going to pause here. and We might do a part two sometime or whatever. But blessed, happy, happiness is what Jesus wanted you to know that you have. It was his first sermon. It was on happiness. But it's upside down, different from what the world would say is happiness. Money and clothes and cars and houses and We see that example every day. It's not. They're jumping from the rooftops like, whatever. But Jesus wants you to be happy. He wants us to be happy. But happiness only comes the way he says it comes. We need to know that. We need to understand that. We need to study that. Somebody say amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening, Lord. Thank you for how you have guided and how you direct. Thank you for your spirit that fills us, Lord, every day. Thank you for knowledge, Lord. Thank you for the knowledge of you. Lord, thank you for that great love with which you loved us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord God, for coming and reaching and stooping way low, Lord, to find me, to find us, Lord God. Lord, I pray that we, everyone here, Lord, would be ready and willing, Lord God, to accept who they are, Lord, so that you can do a good work in them. Lord, your word said, he who began a good work in you shall complete it. So, Lord, I pray that... The, the work that's begun already, Lord, please, Lord God, according to your word and your promise, continue that work in us every day. Lord, may our houses and our homes never be the same. May our city and our country never be the same, Lord, because of what was on the inside of me, what was on the inside of us. And Lord, above anything else, I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified, that people would see us as mirrors of you, mirrors of God, reflections of you, Lord, because of the way we behave, because of the way we speak, because of the way we love, Lord. We bless you. We love you, Jesus. Pray that you would be glorified in our lives. In your name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you.